looks different, doesn't it? Because it's kind of indented. It's, you know, it looks like a, sometimes when a New Testament a book a quotes an Old Testament passage, it like puts it in indentations. And so, like, it's just, it's just a strange passage. So first, I need to explain to you what I believe John's doing here. Now, we've been journeying through this beautiful letter that a pastor, an old pastor John, writes through a group of churches in this land called Asia Minor. And we've been studying all of the hard teaching that has been breathing off of the pages as we picture an old man writing or an old man talking to a scribe who's writing. And in these words, he says things like, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And the last couple of weeks he said, look, you know that you know God if you keep his commandments. And two weeks ago, like Jason has already identified, we looked at the love must be accompanied with loving the church and our brothers and sisters in Christ. A lot of hard teachings. So what John is doing here, it's, it's, it's as if pastor school in ancient lands is the same as pastor school now in non-ancient lands. It's as if they taught him the same thing that, that we've learned. That, that like when you're challenging your people and encouraging them to uh, go for it with hard teachings... Once in a while, you need to stop because the hits, like, they feel like they keep coming. Once in a while, you need to pause and encourage and affirm, and in this case, in, the, in this passage, assure the people. And so this, for John, is a moment where he has been hard teaching, hard teaching, uppercut, left, southpaw. Is that right, John? South, right? He's just been coming at him. And now he pauses. Listen, in the Psalms, it's called a selah, a pause. He, it's as if he writes a poem here that has meter and rhythm, and he takes a moment to assure this group of churches about their faith in Christ. This part is meant to be affirming. They have been, they have been challenged. They have heard a bunch of hard things. And now he says, look, 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 look. Just take a second. And let me remind you of all the things we've been learning. So that next week, and Jason is just going to brilliantly teach next week this hard passage uh, and from verses 15 to 17, so that I can keep going. And that's what he does. This is the only pause in a whole letter of hard teachings. So are you with me? That's the purpose which he writes this odd, this strange group of verses. But there's still problems. Problem A is this. Who, who is he writing to here? Right? Does anyone else? So first he starts out little children. So you're like, oh, this is nice. You know, he's, kind of, he's writing to the kiddos here. This is special. But then, then he says fathers, and then he says young men. So you're like, Who, what, what are you doing here? You know, like, are you just trying to thrust us into confusion, John? Who are you writing to? Well, there's three options. Three options. That's like what my little girl does. Like, how old are you? I'm two. You know what I mean? There's three options. Option A, he is writing to three different groups. Little children, fathers, and young men. Now, not just necessarily by age, but by spiritual maturity. So it's possible that he's writing to three different groups of people. Option B is he's writing to two groups of people. You see, he starts out this poem by saying, I write to you who? 
little children. It's the same way that he opens chapter 2 when he says, my little children. It's a term of endearment. So it's possible here that he begins his poem by saying, I write to you, church, all believers, all Christians. And then he separates the group into two sections. The first section, the the fathers, a masculine term in the culture encompassing all who are mature in their faith. And then he uses the term young men to describe a group of people who are maturing in their faith. So option B is two groups. He starts out with everybody, and then he uses fathers, and then he uses young men. Are you with me? Option three is the whole time he's writing to everybody. When he says, my little children, it begins an all-encompassing poem that then adds fathers and young men. Anyone else confused at this point, right? Perfect. So three of you. Good. Now, here's what I think. Here's what I believe. And, and trust me, there's a lot of different thinking in this area. And I, and I preface all this to say this. At the end of the day, the principles that John is going to teach encompasses all believers. So no matter where you land in this portion of the scripture, it's important for us to teach the context if we're going to teach exegetical scripture. Are are you with me? Like if we're going to teach this verse by verse, then we need to pause and talk about this. But I'll say this. If you get caught up in this debate, then you're completely missing the point of this passage. Because the point of this passage isn't so the hearers, who probably understood better than we do, the point isn't so that as hearers, we just stop. no, 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 it's everybody, I promise you, you know, and then all of a sudden it turns into this debate amongst us. No. The purpose is that each and every one of us hear the principles that John is writing. So, here's what I believe. I believe because the language in the Greek phrasing is exactly the same between verse 2-1 and verse 2-12, my little children, that he begins by addressing them with a term of endearment that he's used before. A few verses earlier, I think it's in verse 7, he says, my beloved. So I think he starts out by saying, look, everybody, listen to this. Be encouraged. Be assured. Be affirmed. Then, he says, you know what? I better include a couple different groups of people here to really speak poignantly to them. Now, again, understand, the principle applies to all. So he says, Fathers, those who are mature in their faith, those who have journeyed a long time, have OMP, old man power. For those of you guys, make that t-shirt. That would go over well in your youth ministry. OMP, right? Someone who's journeyed a long time in their faith has, has been on this j- Fathers. And then he says, oh, but, I, but I also need to write something about the young men to encourage those who are growing in their faith, who are, who are maybe new believers and are kind of in that maturation process. So I believe that he splits it up into two different groups. Again, we're not here tonight to debate, but to teach the scripture. And to teach the scripture, we need to pause, look at the possible theories, and say, let's move on. So you ready to move on? Here we go, verse 12. Now here's the way we're going to work through this. We're going to look at each of these first three. There's six statements that he makes. The first three, and then another three that repeat the first three. That was a lot of threes. What we're going to do is we're going to look at each of these assurances, and then we're going to break them down and look at the power of that assurance for believers, and then the danger if you aren't assured or if you struggle with that particular scripture. So verse 12 says this, I am writing to you, little children, because 
your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. There better be a few different moments tonight when in your seat you just want to jump for joy. That was the intent of this assurance. That was the intent of this pause, was that the readers would look at it and remember my sins are forgiven. Look at, look at the power of this. Put this up, the power. If you believe in this assurance, the power is I do not have to daily question my standing with God. Now, ha- have you ever been in a relationship, and I'm sure you've been in like 95 of them, that, that ultimately like there, be, there was some tension, right? And, and you, of course, you know, did something wrong, and we'll put it in quotation marks, so you never do anything wrong. So you did something wrong, and, and the other person did something wrong, and it created some tension between the two of you. And maybe it was your wife, or, or maybe it was a great friend of yours. And do you remember how consuming that was? Do you remember how consuming it was to wake up in the morning and to think, what is my interaction going to be with this person today? Is it, is it the time for the cold shoulder? Is it going to be awkward? Are, you know, are we still going to communicate? Have you ever been in a hundred of those relationships where there was at least a period of time where you were continually questioning where you stood with that person? What do they think of me? Do they now doubt our friendship? Do they hate me now? The power of the forgiveness of sins is believers can never question their standing with God. Your sins are pardoned, are gone. That's the power that we've learned about justification through the sacrifice of Christ. The church, in John's writing at this point, should be standing and saying, Hallelujah! Every morning when I wake up anew, I get to affirm the fact that my standing is right with God for whose? For His name's sake. You're going to see a repetitive pattern through all of this. The assurance over and over and over has nothing to do with you and I, but deflecting our full assurance in who He is. Don't you love that? Our sins are forgiven for His namesake. Danger! I live as though, if you're struggling with assurance about the forgiveness of sins, I live as though my sins are forgiven by my merit or ability to repent. So every day, you wake up and you're like, "I I don't know where I stand with God today. And so my standing with God today is all about how how tearful I become over my sins or, or my ability to say I'm sorry or my opportunity to make sure that I'm doing things right. You cannot do enough. You cannot cry enough, church. Are you with me? You cannot repent enough. Christ is taking your inability and because of His ability, forgiving you. Are you with me? That's the assurance that we have in forgiveness. He's taking our inability to cry enough, to do good enough, to to preach enough, and placing His ability above that and saying, because of me now, you're forgiven. Some of you, the very core of the gospel, 
is that because of the bloodshed on a cross, you are forgiven. Some of you are struggling believing the very core of it. If you don't believe that you're forgiven, how in the world are you supposed to, as John wrote, live the fulfilling life through Christ? You won't, because every single day you're waking up like, today I have to do, because if I don't do, then I won't be forgiven. Now listen, we've taught before the difference between forgiveness and what? You guys remember? The difference between forgiveness and being cleansed. Right? We're not saying right now that you don't need to repent. Some of you are like, sweet, he just said, do not repent, because I can't repent enough. Hold on a second. Forgiveness, friends, also requires repentance, but that, it, it's that initial justification. The cleansing that is daily happening in our life is the Spirit's work of sanctification, making us more and more and more like Him. So John's saying, church, be assured your Sins are forgiven. And at this moment, there better be like some hearts pumping out of your chest and just saying, praise God that I don't have to daily wake up and question again where I stand with the Father. Verse uh, verse 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Now, this uh, whole rhetoric about the beginning is over and over and over in John's, uh, in John's writings. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, right? So even at the beginning of his gospel, everything is about knowing him who was from the beginning, and that him is Christ. Christ was never an afterthought. He was in the beginning. Now, this is beautiful. If, in fact, he is writing to those who are mature in their faith, do you understand what he's saying here? I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. People with some spiritual OMP know God. I have a grandfather who is very near and dear to me. And uh, I actually have his Bible here with me. Many of you guys can see this. Listen to this. This is how old school it is. The, the, The version, the new analytical indexed edition. Have you, have you ever even heard of that? <laughs> Look, what, what is that, you know? The new analytical indexed edition, right? This was, my, this was my grandfather's sword. Now, the fathers here doesn't imply just old and age. Because let's be clear, you can be 80 and not know Jesus. Are you with me? You can be old in age. My brother Jason just brilliantly... When we were talking through the scripture yesterday, just put this this way. Like, you can be as old as you can be and still not know Jesus. So just because you're old doesn't give you OMP. And you can be a 46 like John Locke is and, has a whole, and have a whole bunch of spiritual OMP. So it doesn't imply that. But listen, my grandfather, when he held this word, his desire was to know more about who God was. Put up a power here. The power of this assurance is I desire to learn more about God from what? From God. And to learn more about God from God, it means that this word is close to me at all times. That I don't have to veer off in any other direction. All I need to do, look at this word. This is like falling apart. This is how much he was in this. 
that this word, I need to learn about God completely from God. The more that you mature in the faith, the less you get distracted by all the peripheral. And the more you're able to focus, God, you teach me about yourself. And I know that you'll use all kinds of different means, but the power of this assurance is that he teaches us more about who he is. The danger. I seek out the perceived truth of God by worldly means. If you're struggling, being assured about knowing God, then when Oprah tickles your mind, you're like, oh, that's an interesting perspective about who God is. And then when you read some brilliant, in your opinion, self-help book about how you need to you know, take your finances and there's no scripture included in it and, just, you know, and, and how weight gain and everything just wraps around that, but there's no scripture used. And you're like, oh, that, that is an interesting perspective about who God is. What it's doing is it's seeing scripture through the lens of culture. And not culture through the lens of scripture. You see, we don't need to negate culture. And Jason will be teaching on this next week. It's not a negating of culture. But it's seeing culture rightly through the lens of scripture. So knowing God then is about learning it from him and his word. If we turn to culture and say, you teach us about who God is, do you understand, friends, what a misperception of the gospel that would portray? But we're doing it all the time. Why? Because we're not truly assured that this book has all there is to teach us about who God is. Do you believe that? And this book talks about the spirit that's in and planted us, that the spirit as well teaches us and empowers us, brings us into all truth, Scripture says. Do you believe that? Or deep down, are you struggling saying, where? You're just looking for the next thing in the next piece. John says, listen, you know God. Next verse. I'm writing to you young men. Any young men in here? Oh, oh, oh my. We, this, this turns the discussion to a whole other discussion of assurance, right? You'll get that tomorrow. I'm, I'm writing to you, young men. Listen, because you have overcome the evil one. Now, this is another reason why I believe that there's two groups of people. He associates fathers, the mature in their faith, with what? With really, really knowing God. And then he attributes young men, those who are young in their faith or maturing in their faith, to what? Overcoming the evil one. Let me remind you of something in your life. When you were a new believer and God was transforming your heart, it was so visible about the difference that had happened, wasn't it? I mean, like here was your old life and here was your new life and it was so visible, the victory that you had had through Christ over the evil one, wasn't it? I'm not, so, so to me, it's this association with this. Put up the power. I love this. The power is... I can fear God and not the enemy. When I was uh, growing up, you guys will actually know right where this is. I, I went to first grade in the city that um, David Letterman did a top ten reasons of why it's the worst place to live in the nation. Uh, Kankakee, Illinois. You guys know where that is? Yeah. Just south of you guys. Went to grade school there. Listen to this story. Unbelievable story. 
So I'm in first grade, and I remember this like it was three days ago, all right? I'm walking by. My mom's picking me up to go to the dentist or doctor. I can't remember which. I'm walking by the principal's office, and I hear screams coming from the principal's office. And I pull up to the principal's office, and this was legal back in the day. I look in, and the principal has a big old swatter in his hand, and this kid is... Is, you know, and he is just going at the student, just swatting his gluteus maximus. The student, this, li- this little kid. And I remember looking in there being like, this is happening? I mean, if this happened in today's day and age, it would be like everyone in the school system would be fired, right? But, but then, and in that particular school, it was legal, man. I mean, he's... So, so listen, and this will illustrate the point. So a week later, a week later... I'm on the playground, and my best friend, Arthur Randall was his name, still remember him, love him to death. Him and I were beginning to, as we used to do, get in some mischief. And I remember, listen to this, I remember sitting there, getting ready to get into some mischief, and I remember the principal swatting that student come into my mind. And at that moment, listen, do you understand? At that moment, I was either going to fear and revere the principal and the swatter, the paddle, whatever it is, the bat really is what it was, you know. <laughs> or, or I was going to fear and revere respect this desire that was growing in me to do mischief. You only fear one. You only fear God or you fear the enemy. You fear one. Now, we're not talking about, oh, we're talking about a respect. We're talking about a reverence. The power of assurance of overcoming the evil one with Scripture after Scripture is clear about is that I can, through Christ, overcome the evil one. And I can then fear God, and I no longer have to fear the enemy. And as he's writing this, and as I'm reading this, and as you should be hearing this now, this is a moment of celebration. God, thank you that I can respect you and revere you to the place that it causes me to fall on my face. The danger is this. I lack confidence through the word and the power of the Holy Spirit to fight. Let me describe this. Without using the word, which tells us what? That we're in a fight. And then we have what? The breastplate of what? Come on. Righteousness, the belt of what? Truth, the helmet of what? Feet fitted with readiness. The soul, I mean, all these things that Scripture says. Do you understand what the, the, the passage is saying? He's saying, I, as Christ, am empowering you to fight by my strength and power. It has nothing to do with you. I'm putting the helmet of salvation on. I'm putting the breastplate of righteousness on. I'm putting the belt of truth on you. Are you with me? What happens is when you lose assurance that you, through the power of Christ, can overcome the evil one, is you begin to think that it's your fight to fight. That every day, it's you against Satan. That every day, it's you against the world. Is there anything more pompous, more prideful about you making this life about your fight? Let me tell you something. He's already won the fight. We can fight no longer.
He's already won. 1 Corinthians 15 says, we have victory through Christ Jesus. He's already fought the fight. He's already won the fight. And so now, through the Spirit and the Word, we can go to battle already victorious. I was a football coach and a football player, and if I could guarantee my victory, I tell you what, the outcomes would have been a whole lot better. But I couldn't. But through Christ, our victory is guaranteed. Come on, church, it's time to wake up and say, oh God, thank you for that assurance. That through Christ, we have the power. Now, the danger of all three of these put together is this. It's easy then, it's easy then to think, okay, John, he's looking at us like we're just these little these little children, and as a grandpa, he's just trying to assure us. And so the power of assurance is that then all of us walk away and we say, yeah, I have forgiveness. I have the Holy Spirit. I have all these things. I can be assured. That is clearly a piece of assurance. But can I share the other piece of assurance with you? What John is saying is, If you, as the church, aren't assured of your forgiveness, of your ability through Christ to overcome the evil one, of your opportunity to know God, if you're not assured of it, then how are you going to tell others about it? If you aren't assured of it, if you can't wake up every day and say, Oh God, thank you for forgiving my sins, then how in the world are you going to communicate the gospel and say, Come on. The power, friends, of the gospel movement is believers being assured not in anything that you have done, but completely, wholeheartedly in the gospel of Christ. The weight comes off your shoulders. What was the last word of the video? Anyone remember? Rest. We then live a life of fulfilling rest. No, not napping, as fun as that would be for some of you but resting in the fact that we do nothing and He does everything. Are you guys with me? The power of assurance that can only come through the gospel is that you and I walk out of this room saying, wow, you are so magnificent and beautiful and gorgeous and holy and faithful that you can somehow give me forgiveness, allow me to overcome the evil one and know you. That is worth telling the world about. Now he goes into three repeating statements. And I want to look at those and the differences now. He says this at the end of verse 13. I write to you children because you know the Father. Now, uh, here's the beauty of this. He repeats something that he's already said. To remind them, and this is what I was thinking about a couple days ago. The God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who split the sea. The God who called a flood. The God who built a boat. The God who uh, raised up a nation. The God who brought all the plagues on Egypt. The same God who was with Daniel in the lion's den. The same God who revealed himself to Paul. The same God who called the disciples by a lakeside. The same God who died on a cross. The same God who rose again. The same God who sent the Spirit. You know that God. Yes, we don't understand all the mysteries. But praise God that we 
We know that, God. Listen to this verse. John wrote this in John chapter 10, verse 14. Listen to this. I am the good shepherd. Listen to this. I know my own, and my own know me. Isn't that beautiful? I am the good shepherd, and as the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. They know me. The, the, the longings of my heart, the desires, of, they know me. Church, there's reason to celebrate, isn't there? So listen, it's time that you and I start communicating through the gospel. Listen, listen, listen. Through Christ, you can know God. You can know God. Verse 14 says this. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. There is, um, I don't know if you've looked around this church ever before, um, but there is an increasing number of mid-20s to mid-30 individuals here, right? If you're in that age range, just say what's up, right? Okay, all of you and some of you still are confused. We'll come back later. Listen, listen, listen. The scripture says here in John, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I wish... I long, and and many of you guys know this about me, I wish that my grandfather was in this church. And I wish that men in this room could sit at my grandfather's feet as he reflected the gospel, didn't take glory for himself, but as he humbly, and he spoke humbly, as he just talked about prayer and faith and what it meant to be strong. What I'm saying is, we at this church long for more individuals that have matured in their faith. So, so if you're here, and you're plus the 35 age range, and God is continuing to grow you, and He's using you, let me tell you something. Here at this church, if you've got some OMP, you're amidst a honeypot. Have any of you guys ever seen Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> Have you? Please. You know, that, dude, listen, if you're, if you're a father here, this church is a honeypot of opportunity. Look around. Plenty of young marriages to disciple. Plenty of college students to pour into. Plenty of youngings like myself and Jason and Jeff and Matt just to take and to pray over and to journey with. Please come. And so if you're here and you got parents, bring them. And they're strong in the Lord. That's what I'm talking about. Bring them. Well, the music's too loud. You know what? Here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned. And, and you guys will agree with me on this. Here's what I've learned. The people that are mature in their faith, and you guys know this, what do they do? They walk in, and they don't see music's too loud. They may think it, and they may be like, oh, this, is, this isn't quite my style. But they walk in, and they see ministry, and they see opportunity. Those that are mature in their faith, they don't walk in and be like, look at those punks all wearing those jeans. They may disagree with it, but they walk in and see opportunity. Can we pray for that as a church? Can we pray that God will bless us with more and more fathers of the faith with more and more individuals that we can look to and learn from because those men and women know God and they know how to know God and that's by going to God and asking for him to teach them. Are you with me? So in your prayer time, 15 minutes after church is over tonight, all right, pray for that. Pray for that. He closes with this. I write to you young men because you are strong. That's just kind of funny to me. I don't know. It's no one else. And, and the word of God abides in you. Again, hear this in the framework of affirmation. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, 
And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He says the exact same thing, but he adds one line. Anyone? Anyone? What does he add? What does he add? Come on. And the word of God, what? Abides in you. He's already said this word abide over and over and over in the epistle. You know God, and you've overcome the evil one. Why? Because you remember Jesus in the temptation in the desert going mano y mano against Satan. And what does he do after fasting and praying for 40 days as Satan comes after him with temptation? What does he do? He repeats the word of God. That's how Jesus fights. So if Jesus fights and he is the word that way, then maybe we should take some lessons. That when you're going to a party and you're beginning to struggle with temptation... You're not trying to come up with some excuse in your mind that can steer you away from the drunkenness opportunities or the lust opportunities. Rather, going through your heart is the Scripture that's causing conflict between the light and the darkness. He's encouraging the young men, saying, you have the Word of God in you, so be assured. If you're a believer in this room, you have these three assurances from the Scripture. First, you have forgiveness through Christ. I mean, it pretty much just preaches for itself, doesn't it? We could, after that one, we could just go home. You have forgiveness through Christ. Not by anything that you've done or any merit that you, you can be assured that you have forgiveness in Christ. Number two, you know God and have the ability to know Him further. Isn't that beautiful? It's not just that I know God right now, but I have the ability through the Word of God abiding in me, through the Spirit revealing all truth, which Scripture says in John to me, I have the ability to know God further. That's why we're here, isn't it? To open the Scriptures and for for God to continue to speak, not through the words of uh, some creative gods, but through His Word teach us more about who He is. Thirdly, you have the power to overcome the evil one. Those are your assurances, believer. So if you're a non-believer here, you're, you're like, so what about, what about for me? The hard truth is, is that you have, some insur- you have some assurances as well. If you're a non-believer here, don't believe God, don't have relationship with Jesus, Let me assure you of three things as well. First, you do not know God. You don't have relationship with Him. When He says, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own and they know me. There's no knowingness. You do not know God. You can't know Him further without relationship with Him. You simply do not know Him. Secondly, you are overcome by the evil one. Scripture says in Ephesians that there's two kingdoms of this world. There's a kingdom of the air and there's a kingdom of heaven. You are overcome, period. Not overcome in this moment or daily. You're overall overcome by the evil one. You do not fear God. You fear and revere the one who will ultimately, his head will be squelched by the, by the bridegroom. That's, that's your assurance. And look, This last one is tough, but it's real. You pay the penalty for sin. 
That's what you can be sure of. Without Christ, you pay the penalty for sin. Christ, for believers, has paid it for them, but for you, there's no assurance. In one of the most impactful moments of the opportunity to, to remember assurance for the believers, Jesus took the bread and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat, and what? In remembrance of me. And when you remember me, you remember that you are assured, because when you remember me, you know that I'm the one that gives you assurance. And so this meal then, though 3,000 years old at this point, became a remembrance opportunity for believers to understand that they are assured. So take and eat in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup. And he said, men, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, he says in Luke 22. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. Remember that my blood assures your forgiveness through my sacrifice. So take and drink. Hey, a non-believer in this room tonight. I already gave you three assurances. Can I give you another one? There's hope through the gospel. You too, though walking in this room, assured that you have paid the penalty for your own sin, you tonight, through the gospel of grace, through relationship with Jesus, you too can walk out of this room assured, not of yourself, but of who Christ is and what he's doing in your life. If you're a non-believer in here and continue and want to wrestle with what that means and what that looks like, a couple of our pastors, Jason and I, are going to be in the back and Jeff and Matt, just grab one of us. If you want to continue talking through what it means to be assured by the gospel of grace, you do not have to walk out of here tonight with those three things being who you are. Christ can take your inability and make it his ability. And say, now you're accepted, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Believers, this meal is not a meal to take for granted. Scripturally, we are to examine our heart. This meal is only for believers. And so, as we turn to a time of response, and as we come up and take communion by, by pulling off the bread and dipping it in the cup, may it be a time of preparation for your heart. Repentance, as God continues the, the cleansing, the sanctifying work in you. And when you come up and take this meal, may it be in victory of the assurance that you have in Christ. As you make this walk, may it be a victory walk of, I am nothing, you make me somehow like you. May this walk tonight and this moment to remember be about the assurance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. So God, there's no fancy word that John could have written to Asia Minor 
to make them more assured. It had to come from you and your spirit. And so I ask that for this room tonight. That you, by your strength, for your glory's sake, will assure us of the fact that our sins are forgiven, that we can know you further, that we have relationship with you. God, assure us of those things tonight so that we can properly portray the gospel. That through Christ, you can wake up, rest assured, not in ourselves, but in who He is. So God, will you do that in our life? And Father, if there are some people tonight who do not believe, but have been sitting in the crowd desiring to be assured, I pray that you'll do a work in their spirit, that they would continue the conversation, that they would talk to one of us as pastors, a friend that knows Jesus, that we can continue the journey towards the gospel. God, call us to repentance now as we remember this opportunity to reflect on you.